When someone begins to question their faith, the last thing church leaders want to do is say the wrong thing or handle it in a way that will further push them away. With so many historical concerns or doctrinal questions, what is a leader supposed to do? I'm happy to report that Leading Saints is here to help with the Questioning Saints Library. This is a full library of 20 plus presentations related to how to minister to an individual who is questioning their faith. We cover topics like how to answer tough questions, maintaining your relationships when someone leaves the church, and how to embrace doctrinal ambiguity. If you want to review all the sessions from the Questioning Saints Library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org 14. That's leadingsaints.org 14. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org 14. The following episode is a throwback episode, one that was published previously and was extremely popular. To see the details of when this was originally published, see the show notes. Enjoy this throwback episode. Today, I'm very excited to uh, welcome an author that I've been following his last uh, few books and uh, been following the content he puts online and, and really has been uh, life-changing and impactful for me. And, and that person is Greg McEwen. How are you, Greg? Oh, I'm just doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. Now, you are in, uh, is it Menlo Park area in California? That's it. Now, you don't sound like your your accident doesn't sound too Menlo Parkian, yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I love how that sounded like you said accident, uh, oh, re- referring <laughs> to my accent. No, there's uh, nothing accidental <laughs> about your accent. Yeah, I'm from London, England originally, and uh, grew up in Leeds in, in Yorkshire in the north of England. Wow, great. And so, and I know I know there's a long story behind it, but uh, generally speaking, how, how did you land all the way over to California from London? Um, well, it, it really started right when uh, I, I came home from my mission and uh, w- enrolled in law school. And I just was so hungry to uh, to feel the sense of mission and to maintain the sense of mission I'd felt for two years. And I just couldn't seem to feel it fully uh, in, in in law. And there's nothing wrong with law, of course. Uh, and uh, <laughs> there's lots of, lots of important work to be done there. But I just could not sense my unique mission there. But I was still in it. Uh, and then I was, yeah. uh, I was actually, um, actually the story that, uh, that's, that's interesting, I reflected on it recently because I was back there, is I, was, I went to visit somebody in uh, the church office building and uh, they said something just curious and in passing, they said, look, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should come and help us with this event. And, and it wasn't so much what they wanted me to do as that question and the assumption of if you didn't have to do what you're doing, if you could do something different, what would it be? And, uh, and, and so I went down the foyer, foyer of the church office building and wrote down on a piece of paper, what would you do if you could do anything? And I brainstormed the answers for the next 20 minutes. And when I was finished, uh, what I was struck by was what not what was on the list, but what was not on the list. And law school was not on the list. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't the thing. And so what do you do? And uh, really what I think that moment came down to is, uh, is are you going to do what is good? Are you going to do what you've, uh, said in the past, you're going to do, or are you going to do the Lord's will and the Lord's way at the Lord's time? And that's a different challenge. Um, yeah. It's a, a, a much different criteria uh, for making a decision. And finally, as I was grappling with that, I thought, well, I better call my parents. And so I called the 15 digit number back to England and my, my mother answered, fortunately. And she said, I think you better talk to dad. And so he comes on the phone. What, what are you going to say? Right. Uh, after all that time, money, effort, the son's halfway around the world. He's got a harebrained idea to not do what he's been doing. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, actually what happened is he listened. It's not entirely like him. And then because all Englishmen quote Shakespeare over tea and crumpets for breakfast in the morning, he, uh, yeah. he pulls out this line from Hamlet. He says, son, you know, we always told you, and he says, to thine own self be true. 
And uh, I mean, incidentally, he never said that to me in his whole life. Wow. But and then he added this, which you you recognize. He said, he said, do do what is right. Let the consequence follow. Nice. And so that was it. Never went back to law school. Wow. Uh, and in hindsight, I'm guessing you don't regret that decision. Oh, I, I, I mean, I've a- never regretted it in the short, medium or long or, or the long run, not even for a moment. But I don't think we do regret decisions where we just have those moments of clarity of this is the right direction. This is what we're supposed to do. This is the where we're supposed to go from here. Uh, and, and of course, you, it doesn't mean you have all the answers forever going forward. Of course, you don't. It, I mean, in fact, that little story is really uh, sort of the work of life, uh, in yeah. my view. It's, it's not that we it's not that we get an answer and then we're done. It's not, it's not focus as a noun. Uh, it's focus as a verb. It's this continual perpetual effort to figure out what is, what is the Lord's will for me? What is the timing he has in mind for me? And, and to seek that so constantly, uh, to, to admit often that we don't have the answers. I mean, I've, uh, I, I only half jokingly would, it's, would share it this way that, that, that there's only two kinds of people in the world. And the first uh, are people who are lost. And the second time, type of person is someone who knows they are lost. Yeah. And it's that second category. If we can get ourselves into that place when I'm staring at that piece of paper in my hands, I know I'm lost. I don't, I don't, what am I to do? Yeah. What, what is the right path? And if we can get ourselves into that mindset, if we can get our heart condition into that place um, of, of really humility, um, you know, broken heart, contrite spirit, that's the idea, isn't it? But if you can yeah. get into that place, then you, then you know what to do. In a sense, if you're lost and you know you're lost, you're not lost anymore. Right. Uh, and, that, and that becomes this continual perpetual journey that, uh, that I feel like I'm still on. Uh, and uh, and that's, sort of, that's sort of how it all began. Well, that's great. That's great. Now, I'm curious about your background a little bit. Uh, being LDS in in London, did you or did you come from a a long history of of members in the church, or is there uh, are you a first generation Mormon, second generation? How did that? Uh, uh, on yeah. on my mother's side, she was a convert um, at 17, and uh, so to, a couple of her friends just invited her to an activity, and it was just a few weeks after that that she. Uh, that she joined the church and just transformed her whole life and her sense of uh, of who she was, and uh, compared to how she'd understood herself before. So it was a a, a, a massive transformational experience. And um, on my father's side, my uh, my grandparents, um, there, were, there were two missionaries uh, who were exhausted, tired out, and decided to knock on three more doors in London and they knocked into my, uh, into my grandparents and that, that equally transformational, but in a different way, uh, they went on to be the first, to my knowledge, the first non U S temple president and matron, um, in the world, uh, serving in London for several years. Wow. And, uh, they, they've both passed away now, but they're, you know, who they are, what the trade-offs they made, uh, what they represent. I mean, it, their example just thunders down to me. Uh, yeah. and, and so, yeah, that's, that, that's the longer, cool. that's the longer story. Yeah. So, um, how would you describe, you know, in your upbringing, obviously being raised in an LDS home, how would you describe the development of your personal testimony? Um, I mean, when I think about, uh, when I think about, Joseph Smith as as the master asker. Uh, I feel like there was a lot of that in in my home. Um, There was not a sense of for me. There was not a sense of this is this is how this is how it is. It was it was you need to you always need to go to God to figure this out. You you know, there was a testimony. It was clear. There was, there was no ambiguity around that for me growing up, but, but it was also as clear as that, that I had to be the one praying. I had to be the one writing my journal. I had to be the one reading the scriptures. I had to be going to church. I had to be seeking the Lord myself. Uh, and so, 
so there was no sense for me of there's never been this sort of shocking moment of oh my goodness what 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 did my what what do we really believe and oh what that happened in our history or none of that yeah. there's never been any of that because I was reading all about that right from the beginning I, I, and there was no sense of I never had a sense that uh, that that the leaders in the church were, were were perfect we don't believe that that's not our doctrine. Uh, but they do carry keys and they do represent Christ. And, it, and so these things have not have been w- with me from very young. Uh, and I do. I, I know to this moment uh, with clarity, with clarity beyond words, uh, that, uh, that, you know, that Joseph Smith uh, saw what he said he saw, uh, that this is the uh, the, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that, it, you know, I, I know as well as I know anything in my life that it will continue on in its destiny, uh, that it will, that it will grow and, and, and break forward with or without me, uh, with or without any of us, uh, individually. And so I, I want to be, I want to be a part of it. I want to fulfill my own mission within that broader mission. Yeah, that's fantastic. So that testimony obviously led you to a mission. Where did you serve your mission? I served in Toronto, Canada, the Canada-Toronto East Mission. Wow, great. And did, did you uh, use any French up there or did you learn French or was it all English speaking? There was no missionary spoke French in the mission. Uh, but, oh, okay. But we did have a whole, um, you have to go further, uh, uh, you know, up into Quebec. Uh, for that, but gotcha. um, uh, but you, uh, but we did have a whole zone of Chinese-speaking missionaries, a whole zone of uh, Spanish-speaking missionaries. So I mean, we, oh, it, Toronto is the most multicultural city in the world, and so we taught people from over a hundred countries. It was an extraordinary crash course in uh, in in the world. Um, by the time we were done, yeah, we talked, you know, everywhere. People from Ethiopia, of course, all of the countries of Europe, from Iran, from Iraq, from uh, from, from all over Asia. Yeah. An amazing experience from Somalia. Awesome. Yeah. Wonderful. So come over, you came over from your mission and then obviously pursued your studies. And if I remember right from uh, your bio, you, uh, you got your undergrad in journalism. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, that was the, that's, that was, so that's after the law school, uh, period, uh, went to, okay. went to BYU, uh, did my undergraduate in print journalism. And, uh, and that was because of two, two reasons, really. Um, one, because I wanted to write, I wanted, that was what was on the piece of paper was to teach and to write. And so I wanted to choose a, a degree that, uh, that was, and it's either that or English literature, uh, both of them would have been good options, but the journalism took the edge for me because, um, because I loved the idea of asking the right questions and that being critical, uh, factor, uh, you know, we, 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 we spend a lot of our energy in life uh, being taught how to give the right answers to existing right. questions, but, uh, but a deeper spiritual capability uh, and gift, I think, is the ability to write, ask the right questions uh, that, that precedes getting the right answers. So, so journalism was one of the few, very few uh, undergraduate programs that, that has an emphasis in, in, in questioning and asking questions. Nice. Well, I definitely have no journalism background, but uh, we'll see how I hack through these questions uh, nonetheless. But uh, I'm definitely learning as I do these interviews. So uh, now, where did you meet? Did you meet your wife at BYU, the, the typical BYU story? Or where did you meet your wife? Um, the the uh, the very first part of how we met, so the, the, the very beginning is that, uh, is that having quit law school, coming to BYU now, trying to teach and write, um, I had been asked to write a, a column for the daily universe for the, for the newspaper on campus. And I wrote a, a whole set of those in, you know, uh, in advance, uh, 200 of them, in fact. Um, and uh, they, they did a cover story uh, in the newspaper and introduced the very first column. So there was a cover story and then the column. And as it, as it turns out, um, there was never a second column. So it, it was cancelled by somebody further up the chain, not because not, not not personal to the to what I'd written, but they just were saying, "Oh no, yeah. no, we don't do columnists. We're not doing that for a variety of reasons." And so here, there's all this work suddenly just burned, 
Uh, and, uh, and I remember sort of complaining about it the day it happened to a friend. And then the spirit just said, just don't you complain? Don't you, com- don't worry about this. It will work for your good. It will work out. And it was just within days of that. I mean, like maybe even the next day, but certainly within a couple of days of that, um, that Anna, who is the most amazing person in my life and my wife, uh, was reading the article and, um, and had more of a connection, more of a sensation of who, who is this person and maybe, you know, something of a trigger, uh, and a spark of some kind, I suppose, she's not here to defend herself. So I'll just, I just can continue <laughs> down this path. Sure. I like the narrative. Absolutely. Uh, and, and then it turned out that, uh, that we were both teaching, uh, in the MTC. And so we, we, we met, you know, um, you know, moments after this. And so actually I'd lost my scriptures. She found them. She knew who I was because of the article and she sent me a note and, uh, and that was the beginning. Awesome. Uh, yeah. It was, it was I have a love story that continues. Yes. I'm sure. <laughs> That's right. That's true. Great. Great. So after, uh, obviously your, your, uh, your career progressed and then you came in contact with Liz Wiseman and we've had Liz on a number of times. She has been so, so generous to, uh, to me and to leading LDS, you know, from, uh, somebody who's a, a best-selling author to, to be approached by a cute little podcast like I'm doing, but she's been so, so wonderful. So how did you first uh, begin working with Liz? As I was, I was at my Stanford doing my graduate work and, um, and so somebody, we were in the same stake. And so somebody made the introduction. And so I um, became involved in uh, the early research uh, for what grew into multipliers and then uh, then worked with Liz on every aspect of that book, uh, pre-publication, through publication, and then afterwards. And uh, it, was a, it was a terrific set of, uh, of learning, of experiences. Um, and that's, that's, that's that story. Gotcha. And I've uh, recommended obviously that book, uh, at nauseum on, on the podcast as such it's impacted my leadership as I've served as bishop and in councils and, you know, have helped me come to terms with some of those, uh, diminishing, uh, characteristics that I, that I hold, but, um, a fantastic book. And, and so your role there, I mean, you you were a co-author of that book. Is that the best way to describe, describe your work there? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. But is there's, there's lots of ways to, to communicate it. I just, was a part of the, the research, the writing, the uh, selection of, of language, of, uh, of stories, of uh, interviewing people. Uh, one of the people that I reached out to through that journey and became very good friends with was, uh, was Larry Gelwicks, who you will know from Forever yeah. Strong. Uh, also had him on the podcast. Uh, so he's, 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 he's a incredible. good friend of mine, and, uh, and it has been amazing uh, what, what he has how he has, uh, you know, how he has led, how he's approached things. Uh, but, but it's interesting because he's a, he's a, he's a leader who has bridged both the, both the multipliers work. He is a multiplier, but he's also an essentialist and it's not, it's, that's not so normal, um, that, yeah. that somebody can epitomizes both of those principles. And so, uh, so it's been, it's been fun to study his approach from both angles. Uh, I've learned a lot through that journey. Awesome. Awesome. And we could do hundreds of, of podcast episodes related around the principles of, of multipliers. And, uh, we, we've done a few, but I hope to do some in the future, but, uh, definitely want to pivot towards uh, your church leadership and also talking about uh, in the context of, of essentialism, your, your, uh, your other book that you've written. Um, but first let's, let's talk about your, your church service. You're currently serving as a Bishop. Is that right? Yes, sir. And, and how did that come to be? I mean, obviously nobody expects that. There's no application one fills out, nor would they, we want to fill out such application. But uh, how long have you been bishop and how did that uh, how did that happen? What do you remember about being called? Um, I was called just just a bit less than two and a half years ago. Um, I served in a variety of capacities in the world before that. And uh, I don't know if I say, one of the things that stood out to me um, well, actually, I'll tell you something, a funny story. So my counselor, um, his, it was Rob Maines, my first counselor and, and his father is elder Maines. Um, oh, okay. and, and I hadn't really expected this, but, uh, but he just, he, he flew in for the, uh, for the, for, 
for his, his setting apart. And after the settings apart, he, he, uh, he came over to me. He said, he said, well, listen, I only really have one piece of advice for you. He said, just make sure uh, that you don't do anything that requires us to add another paragraph into the handbook. <laughs> that's sound advice right there. <laughs> and so, uh, and so I've, I've held that up as my great mission statement for the, uh, for the, for the experience. Um, no, I tell you, you know, it's been, it's been an amazing experience. It's, uh, it's, it's full of, it's full of learning. It's full of, uh, of, you know, discovery into the human condition. And, uh, I mean, among them, is a sense of the universal struggle of people uh, that that everybody, uh, no matter how, how successful they are, no matter how you know how they appear, um, there 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 are real struggles and challenges in their lives. And uh, Anna and I will summarize this: that nobody gets out without a mortal experience, and. And so that has been one of many, uh, you know, continual insights into uh, as I've served. Is it? It's just, you know, you've got home teachers and visiting teachers, and and sometimes in that role, people think it just doesn't matter uh, very much whether I go or not. And uh, as bishop, you you just know, you know that it matters. You know why it matters. And so uh, anyway, lots of experiences from it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, definitely, you know, it, it, and I want to continue that theme of obviously talking from the perspective of, of your calling, mainly uh, because this is a, a leadership podcast in the context of LDS leadership. And and as I read Essentialism, um, which those of you that aren't familiar, they're listening, Essentialism uh, subtitled is the, dis- the Disciplined Power, or I'm sorry, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. Um, and as I got a hold of this book, I've actually, uh, I have the audio book that I read, have, I've probably read three or four times, um, or listened to obviously. And I recommended it to my business partner and he read it and he came to me and we both had this sort of this, uh, aha moment as a business. And we, we really went back to the drawing board with a lot of things that were uh, the way we're approaching things in our business. And it really, it really impacted us dramatically. And so I thank you for that, the way that it's impacted my life that way. And I continue to revisit it when I just need to reconnect to that disciplined pursuit of less, because there's so, so much power in that, in that, uh, in that concept. And so maybe tell us, I, uh, how, how did you come to decide that this was, this was your next book project, or this is what you wanted to invest your life in is, is this, this concept of essentialism. Uh, looking back, it really all started with a moment when uh, my boss at the time emailed me and said, Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. <laughs> um, w- and your wife was pregnant at the time. Well, right? that would, it would be even stranger <laughs> if she wasn't. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but Friday was in fact the day that she went into labor. And so I'm in the hospital and my daughter is born and everybody's healthy, everybody's well. But instead of being focused on this essential moment, I felt pulled. How can I do both? How can I keep both people happy? How can I, how can I navigate this? And to my shame, I went to the meeting and afterwards my boss said to me, um, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. And I don't know that they did, but (laughs) even if they did, surely I had made a fool's bargain. And that was when I really learned the simple lesson uh, in hindsight, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And so you've got to make sure uh, that you're, you are really figuring this out, um, you know, each, each day, <laughs> do what is right, let the consequence follow, figure out what the priority is, uh, eliminate what's not. And so, and so that was definitely a formative, uh, a, def- a defining moment. As I look back, uh, I, I, I left that experience, uh, left that uh, that job um, ultimately, and 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 said, "Look, wh- why is it that people make the choices they make? Surely I'm not the only person uh, who has been pulled in many different directions uh, that has, has felt this tension and of, of, of not living in a neutral world where other people have these opinions about how things should be." 
Uh, in fact, I mean, we we don't just one of the things I found is we don't just live in an age of information overload. We live in an age of opinion overload. <laughs> That's for sure. And so in that kind of environment, it's not just it's not just as it was in my case, a sort of individualized situation. It's also a societal cultural situation now for people. People feel pulled, you know, they feel stretched too thin at work and at home most of the time. People feel busy but not productive. People feel this pressure to say yes, even when they're overcommitted already. They feel overworked and underutilized. I mean, this is the this is the the the, the undisciplined pursuit of more. Uh, that we're in right now, and the name for it finally was I gave for this was non-essentialism. Uh, this is this is the culture that we're in, and so uh, that was what I found. The question is, is what you can do about it, and the antidote to the undisciplined pursuit of more is the disciplined pursuit of less but better. Right. And that's definitely, like you mentioned, that's sort of the default mode that we're in is the the undisciplined pursuit of more, right? Where, where so many people wake up after years of, you know, going to the office or, or pursuing something that they just sort of get in this, uh, you know, going through the motions and they realize that they're pursuing more, but they don't know why, right? Because there's so much technology. And, and you talk about this concept of, of nobody's really, at least in your adult years, nobody's really bored anymore, right? Because we have that smartphone ready to, to be flicked through Facebook or to, you know, to check that email, you know, there's always a way to engage your brain in something of that undisciplined pursuit. Yeah. I have a, I have a friend who has studied, um, uh, what it takes to have technology hook people. And, uh, and he, he finds that there are some conditions for being hooked for addiction of all kinds. One is that sometimes a certain behavior will produce a real sense of, of pleasure, of success. Um, and then sometimes the same behavior will produce uh, feelings of real disappointment. Uh, and then the third condition is that the first two conditions are randomly assigned. So when you think about somebody who's in, um, uh, you know, they're in Las Vegas, they're on the, uh, the, the slot machines, that that's the, those are the conditions. Sometimes something great is going to happen for them. Sometimes something terrible is going to happen and they don't know when it is. So that's what keeps them in there. That's what keeps you playing. Right. You, the next one could be bad. The next one could be great. You don't know. Now that is email. That is the, you know, having email on our phones, having it with us all the time. It's, it is addiction. That's what, that's the environment we're in. I, I don't, I used to think of that as it's a metaphorical addiction, you know, just, just source of addiction. No, it's addiction. Well, that's what it is. We, right. 50% of, uh, of youth believe that they are addicted to their phone. Uh, just, just barely that uh, research came out about that. I mean, this week. Uh, I was reading that uh, you, you've just uh, on average, people check their phones 150 times a day. Uh, uh, the highest level is 900 times a day. Uh, wow. So that is that's not I mean, we're just using this as one example. It's a, it's a literal example, but it also serves as a metaphor for just the environment we're in, that we're in today. I, I believe that we are today in a busyness bubble. Uh, and. Uh, like other bubbles before it, this bubble it has an overvalued asset that becomes built, leads to irrational exuberance in the culture. And so then people behave in ways that in hindsight will look really ridiculous, will look foolish, just like the real estate bubble, right? People were doing yeah. things that in hindsight were really foolish. Lots of people, oh, just the bankers. Yes, they did too. They, they, maybe they're primarily responsible, but lots of other people made those kinds of decisions that, you know, that now we say, oh, of course you shouldn't have done that. Now, in the same check test exists now. Can we get out of this busyness? Can we act in a way that will look wise in hindsight, even amidst the busyness bubble? That's the challenge. Can we operate in a way that later people will say, well, yeah, you, you got it right. You were smart. You work through that correctly. And the answer, the, the only way to do that is, you know, to use the, the language of essentialism is to be an essentialist, is to take on a particular approach to your, to, your, uh, to your personal leadership and also to your professional leadership. And, and that's really what the cases I'm making in this book 
that's what I think has the, the power of relevancy now is to live and to lead as an essentialist. Right. And, and I sort of, after reading the book, I get the impression that this is a, you're addressing, um, you talk about that relationship with, uh, you know, technology or whatever, but this is really a, um, addressing where our culture has taken us, whether, whether, uh, on purpose or not, uh, through technology or not, but we are all living, you know, you can ask most people, um, you know, in our society, uh, how, how's work going, how's life going? And they generally say busy, right? Um, tell us about, you use this analogy of, of the closet. I forget exactly how you, you term it in the book, but, uh, can you tell us about that, that closet analogy? I think that's important for uh, church leaders to, to hear and understand. Well, I, the, 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 the challenge is, is, is clear in the, in the closet. We, we tend to put too much in there. Uh, we tend to pursue an undisciplined pursuit of more. That is that we add things from time to time and we rarely go through it all. So in the end, it becomes cluttered. It becomes too full. You can't find anything despite there being, it being a mess. It's like there being lots of things in there. We can't seem to find things that we really love to wear or want to wear. So that's the undisciplined pursuit of more. Uh, what, what's the, you know, What's the discipline pursuit of less look like? It says instead of instead of taking an item off the shelf, looking at it, and then saying, "Well, uh, maybe I'll maybe it'll come back into fashion again someday, <laughs> or maybe yeah. maybe it will fit me again in the future somehow," uh, <laughs> or or uh, you know, I could possibly be invited to an event where I need you know, just that kind of tie. So, uh, so, so instead of asking those questions, those questions are such broad questions, meaning they, they, the answer to those questions is inevitably, yes, of course you might need that again. Of course you might be able to use that sometime in the future, maybe. Now that's so broad. What, what we would need to do to clear out the closet, the, the discipline pursuit of less would be to continually have a process for, for carefully selecting uh, just the right few things. So we might ask, do I love it? We might ask, do I wear it often? We might ask, do I look great in this? Or we could use what Marie Kondo says, does it spark joy? Yeah. Now, if you ask those questions, what you have left, I know from personal experience is a lot less, but what you have are just the right things. You, you have less, but better. Yeah. Now, of course, as you already suggested, this is, this is a metaphor for our lives. We're not talking about our closets, although it is literally true. We're talking about the metaphor of our lives in which people are stuffing things into our closets all day long. And so, of course, it's overwhelming. Of course, it's overloaded. Of course, we can hardly get into the closet of our lives. There's just stuff in there all the time. And so this is the environment that any church leader is operating in today. The, the, the people they're serving are going to be feeling this in their own lives. Sometimes we ourselves have created this, the, the, the traditions of, uh, of our ward, of quorum we're in, is, can suddenly add to, add to this burden unintentionally. And so our job uh, as, as, as church leaders is really to strip away um, all, of the, all of the non-essentials, to strip away those things that may be good. I mean, this is, you know, Elder Oaks with the whole church knows this phrase now, right? Good, better, best. There's a reason everybody knows that because it, it names something that's a real challenge. And we have to be careful about this. We have to be thoughtful. Now, I'm not saying that we should, sometimes sometimes people could apply essentialism in the wrong way, in a counterfeit way. They might say, well, I'm not going to go to church there because I'm going to spend time with my family. Right. And that's the right trade-off. Uh, but sometimes non-essentialism can be done uh, in a disciplined way. Uh, right. it, it, what we need is a disciplined, or you know, it's the same root word as discipled, a discipled approach, pursuit of what the Lord really wants and when he wants it. That's the obligation. The obligation isn't to our traditions, even good traditions. Uh, our obligation isn't to the past. Our obligation isn't to what everyone else is doing or what every other ward is doing. It's not. It's not, our obligation is much more singular than that. You know, the priority of our life, singular, is, is 
is the Lord and his agenda. And my, my job is to figure that out. My job is to figure that out if it's popular or not. My job is to figure that out whether it's what I want or not. Uh, and so this is really the celestial version of the idea of essentialism is, is, is can we figure that out? Can we get the discernment clear enough um, and, and not just react, not just get pulled into the busyness of whatever calling we have, uh, but to really hear his voice. So we're doing his will in his kingdom and not just everything popular now, which is, I think, sort of the default position. Yeah. And, and I, and I love that, that phrase, how you tweak your, your subtitle there, that the discipled pursuit of less, because that that's so powerful to hear. And, and as I was, you know, reading the book, that's the thought that came to me over and over. Cause obviously I'm, I'm listening to the book. I'm knowing, you know, you're a Bishop and you're talking about these concepts. And so I'm sort of thinking about in the context of the church, but, um, and, and just to use and talk about a concept that you talk about in the book about the, the power of saying, you know, no to things. And we've all in the professional world. I think anybody working there has been in a situation where your supervisor or manager comes to you and says, Hey, guess what? Here's a whole big hairy gorilla project that I'm going to now lay on your plate. And you talk about uh, some examples in there of individuals saying, well, if you want me to work on that, which task that you've already given me, would you like me to neglect? Right. And, and that's a powerful conversation to have, um, with a manager or a supervisor. Um, but it seems like to me that the thought that came back to me is the culture of the church sort of lays a whole nother layer on the culture of just the culture in general that, uh, this undisciplined pursuit of more is that when we have a, you know, there's so many programs in the church. We have uh, home teaching, we have family history. We have, uh, you know, I just got back visiting a girl's camp last night. Uh, so many of these different programs. And then when a priesthood leader or a, a leader in general comes to you, it's a lot, I guess it's a little more awkward saying no to those things when we feel like that direction is coming through inspired direction. Do, do you kind of get what I'm getting at or your, yeah, absolutely. your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to tread wisely through this. We've got to navigate this. Right. We've got to navigate this in a, in a sensible way. Um, let, let's, let's begin with the idea that I didn't write a book called Noism. Um, <laughs> right. And the difference really matters. Uh, you know, it's about what's essential. And we ought to give thought for consideration to all of the requests in our lives, including uh, requests that are made uh, in, you know, in a church environment. Um, I mean, I remember my mother as a young convert um, going to church with young children. I don't know if it was five at the time, but, but, uh, uh, but certainly little children. And in an effort to be useful, uh, whatever anybody asked her to do, she would simply say yes immediately, no matter what it was, because oh, it's, it's the church and I ought to be doing anything I'm asked to do by anyone and uh, everything and every, uh, everyone. And she, she would lead church and she suddenly realized, well, I'm just, I just got five more things to do. I'm just overwhelmed <laughs> by this. And so yeah. she learned something, actually I write it in the book, although I don't give that uh, all that context, that she just right. learned this phrase and she's used it ever since in her life it, it, it is let me check my calendar and get back to you. So that means she just gets a pause to think, to be sure not to try to make sure that worldliness wins out over church requirements, that's the wrong trade-off, to make sure that the Lord's voice wins out over any other voice. So that's, that's vitally important. And, and so that's to have the pause matters. Um, in my own experience, I remember uh, serving in a calling, uh, serving on the high council, and I'd been asked to, to work on uh, one you know, big area work on missionary work. And then, and then, oh, but here's another thing. And here's another thing. And I was now working on three different assignments. And then they came with two more assignments. And, and that's perfectly reasonable that they should, they should come They're They're trying to make certain things happen. It's perfectly reasonable for me to ask, as I did ask, look, I am very happy to do all of these five projects. I'm happy to do those, but I think I'll just do them sort of averagely well, or maybe I can do them. I can be good at them all. But I can't go big in them all. I just can't. So is the, it, would you prefer I sort of did good at five different things, or would you prefer I went really big on one of them? I think that's a very respectful thing to ask. I think that's not yeah. – there's nothing, there's, nothing, um, um, uh, there's nothing inappropriate about that. that. That is part of counseling together. 
uh, wisely. And, and the response was almost immediate. Oh, uh, we definitely want you to work on this one big area that we want you on mission work. That's what we want you on. And so for the next year, I was able to completely focus my energies on that. And it made a big difference. It was a, it was the difference between sort of a bit of everything uh, versus something, one, one main thing and, and everything. I mean, we had 400 families in the state create family mission plans. We had absence went up higher than they'd been in several years previously. We, uh, that's because we were able to focus on fewer things. Um, and that was inspired. And that's part of, uh, that's, that's what, that's what I think essentialism looks like. It doesn't look like somebody saying, Oh, I just don't do coins. Uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't look like somebody saying, you know, I just, I just opt out of everything to do with the church because I think other things, a community is more important. Than that. No, it's not that. Um, but it is a perpetual approach to what the Lord wants us to do. And I'll tell you that even though this is a doctrinal path less traveled by, it doesn't make it less doctrinal. If you read the scriptures end to end with an essentialist lens, you just will be amazed at how continual this theme runs like a golden thread through almost the entire standard works. The, 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 the divine, um, divine trade-offs are a requirement of our lives. There's no point in talking about agency unless there are trade-offs we're going to have to make, unless we're going to have hard trade-offs to make. This is, this is key to coming here is that we can't do it all. We can't do all of the good things. We can't even do all of the great things. So what are we to do? Well, we can either really not use our agency and just react to it all. Let these things act upon us. We can be acted upon even by good things, or we have to go to the Lord, work things out in our own mind, try to figure out what the essential things are, go to the Lord for confirmation, seek his revelation, seek his will, and ultimately arrive at what is essential. Not what's good, not what's great, what's essential. And, and that to me is, is the, that's, you know, that is far from being, um, uh, being an, uh, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for, an unsustaining position uh, or, or an unhelpful position. That is the exact position we're supposed to be in. That's the position the Lord was in. He didn't feel the obligation or didn't at least didn't allow it to, um, you know, uh, make him do it. Uh, when, when he's on the earth, he didn't feel the, this obligation to do everything that the law of Moses was teaching him to do. He, he didn't feel the obligation to fulfill all of the expectations of society or all of the expectations of the, uh, uh, of the, uh, you know, the aristocracy of his time, the, uh, the, uh, the religious leadership. He, he, even when that made him unpopular, he didn't feel that obligation. He felt the obligation to keep coming back to what really was essential, the, the, mm. his father's will for him. I mean, I mean, think about it. All the things Jesus didn't do. And it's, it's a breathtaking thing to consider. Yeah, that, that's powerful. I mean, we, we focus so much, even that uh, the old time phrase, you know, what would Jesus do? But to really step back and read the scriptures from a point of view of what did Jesus not do? What did know? he not do? What were, and not just the sin, which, of course, is, is a big, big deal, the, the, the big sins. Yes, we know he didn't do that. But, but neither did, you know, sin has uh, one of the root definitions of sin is uh, of its original meaning is to miss the mark. And there are all sorts of ways we can miss the mark by pursuing good things. Um, There were all sorts of good missions he did not pursue. There are all sorts of problems going on in Jerusalem, in Israel, that he didn't touch. There were all sorts of people that needed to hear the gospel outside of Israel that he didn't go to. So I think it's striking. I said it already, breathtaking to think about it from this lens. And to realize we do not have the obligation to do everything perfect now. We do not have that obligation. That is an undoctrinal position. And yet somehow because of the culture out of the church and because of how culture affects 
all organizations. So it's even true within the church. You know, I'm not suggesting we take worldly ideas and bring them into the church. I'm suggesting we need to take worldly ideas out of the church in our experience Mm -hmm. there, that we have to make sure that we don't create this sense of you've got to do it all and you've got to do it all now. Uh, That's that's something we can, uh, essentialism maybe can give people permission uh, not to do. Uh, can yeah. give people permission to to go a different way. So, from your um, perspective as bishop, you know, with so many so many callings, so many programs, so many lines in the handbooks, uh, how do you create that culture of essentialism within your ward? Um, look, I, I I don't feel like I have all the answers for this. It's um, it's it's a, it is a challenge uh, yeah. because uh, for, for a lot of reasons because because we have done things a certain way in the past because, um, because working out what's essential is itself hard and continual work. Um, but, but I will say this, that, uh, that, that one of the things is to, you know, one, I can give you an example of something I think that's, that we've done that works, uh, every week in ward council, uh, instead of spending, you know, we don't have an hour. We, we do it tighter than that. It helps us, helps keep us essentialist. Uh, but, uh, but, but out of the normal meeting that we do, that, uh, that people do in ward council, it would be very easy to imagine using up a lot of time on a policy matter or on activities that need to be planned or, you know, on a whole variety of things that, that, that are secondary. And so one of the things we've done to address this is we just, we go through priority names so each auxiliary each week reports on their priority name from last week and what their action was. And then we talk about what the priority name is for, for within each auxiliary for this coming week. And that means that we, it, what it helps us to do is it helps us focus on, uh, you know, on individuals, you know, as Elder Bernard talks about it, about the one. Uh, it helps us make sure that we're dealing with, uh, with people and serving individuals uh, instead of programs. And I have found that it took me a while to to come to that to understand that, but that has that has proven to be uh, to be a way that that you can't walk out of that meeting. I mean, I don't know, of course people could, but I, I I don't walk out of that meeting. I don't think other people do. Feeling like, oh, well, we just had another meeting. Yeah, you walk out <laughs> going, we have we have spent time talking about individuals who we can do something about together as a council or individually, uh, and. And we have this week to go and do those things. And so that has been one, uh, you know, one thing, concrete thing that we've done to apply essentialism inside the ward. So when you say priority name, that's a name of an actual individual in your ward that that auxiliary is going to focus on. That's correct. It's, It's a name of an individual that an auxiliary is raising that we may all be able to support in some way, but it's certainly, uh, but yes, that's, that's what it is. Gotcha. Now I'm intrigued by, you say you generally, you're, you generally don't have an hour for, for ward council. Is that right? That's right. Yes. And, uh, so d- how do you, how do you stay disciplined and, and discipline everybody in, in the ward council to stay on that time frame? Or do you set a time frame to say, we're only going to be here for a half hour? How does that happen? Uh, well, I mean, we meet before we meet before church. So that's a, a forcing function. Oh, um, uh, so we meet at eight and we go through till, till eight forty five. Uh, for a long time, it was just half an hour, and, and I just felt we just need a little more uh, buffer uh, to be able to to get through that exercise of priority priority name for the week, what we've done from the week before, and then what the priority name is and what we're going to do going forward for the next week. And and so that's it. That's that's how that forcing function works. Gotcha. Any other thoughts in relation to uh, essentialism related to uh, meetings? Because uh, I've, we've, we've discussed this on leading LDS quite a bit. And I, I put out an article, uh, about a year ago that said that the seven unbreakable rules of a meeting, and it was maybe more strongly titled than I meant it to be. But, um, one of those rules is that no meeting is worth going over an hour and, uh, in the, especially these administrative meetings. So is, are there any other, Oh, oh but then I want to mention there is that individuals came back and said, well, by doing that, by setting yourself, by, by uh, compressing the meeting into a certain uh, time frame, you are limiting the spirit of revelation that can happen there. And I, and I don't agree with that, but what would your thoughts be in regards? I mean, do you feel like those meetings are still full of the spirit, still full of inspiration and progress? Um, 
Well, I think that um, I think that I wouldn't. I don't prefer the idea of having a having ward council have uh, have a broader. Okay, so we're gonna. Sometimes it could be two hours. Sometimes it could be three hours. Sometimes it's an hour and a half. I, I like that it's tight. I like that it just challenges us to be disciplined. That it challenges us to 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 stay focused to do it. That's why we do it every week, so that there's a there's you're having a small connection, a smaller footprint more often. I think there's there's cumulative advantage to that approach, even to the revelation. But it's it's impactful to me that the council of twelve meet every Thursday together to talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think there's a, there's value to be said to have a disciplined time, to have a disciplined schedule. Um, I mean, as, as to whether I, I, I mean, do, I think that it has to be a rule one hour. Um, no, I don't think I, I don't think I would necessarily buy that, but I do think that I think that having singular purpose, uh, as I read somewhere once to have, um, to have a tight purpose and a loose agenda rather than a tight agenda and a loose purpose seems to be the essentialist approach that, 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 that certainly I have a preference for. So to, to say, okay, so sometimes as a bishopric we meet, and instead of saying, okay, well, we're going to just talk about everything we can talk about in the ward, which is really an endless set of potential issues, we'll say, okay, we're going to meet, and it's a callings meeting. The whole time we're going to work is just going to be figuring out the callings that need to be, uh, to be assigned uh, and that is that is the whole purpose of the meeting. So, so that again is one way to apply essentialism in a way that that it, it, you know creates a forcing function, uh, helps you not to be just going all over the place and just talking. I mean, that's the problem. I think this is what makes meetings exhausting for people in the church or or elsewhere is where where you just you know if you take on too many different subjects, if you just bounce around on all different subjects, then you know you've not done anything. You know you're just sort of uh, you know, you, you, you're just trying to drink in the ocean and, and it can't be done. I'm curious as you, obviously when you wrote this book, uh, I would imagine you were called to Bishop af- as Bishop after sort of the main uh, book was written. Was that, is that accurate? It, it was, I was called a month or two months before the book came out in an, in an act of, of cosmic significance <laughs> and may, nice. maybe a cosmic joke. Nice. Is there, um, is there anything as you've uh, been serving as Bishop, any unique characteristics of this calling that, that has caused you to struggle with certain essentialism, uh, principles that you may not have struggled with in your professional life? Everything about the calling is a, <laughs> is a, is a tension with essentialism, literally everything. Uh, because, because at the heart of essentialism is, is, is an idea that, that, you know, one can disagree with, but this is the, this is the challenge, right? Is, is it true that everything is essential or is it true that almost everything is non-essential and only a few things are essential? A non-essentialist believes everything's important. It all has to be done. An essentialist believes that almost everything is non-essential and a few things are incredibly valuable. Now I maintain the second category. I, I believe that. I believe that's what the doctrine teaches. I believe that that's what um, what what we can be demonstrated in almost every field of human endeavor. So then you say, okay, now you're called as a bishop. But what are the essential things? You you are you, it, the whole game is taken to the next level. Game is the wrong word, but the whole challenge is taken to the next level because there's so many good things you could do. You know, it's like it's like somebody playing in uh, you know soccer in. Uh, high school and then suddenly going to play in the world cup. Uh, and you're playing at such a, a higher challenge level that that's, that's the challenge. Uh, now I, I give considerable energy, time resources to my calling. And, and I believe that's appropriate. I believe that's right. I believe that's essential, but within that there's still far, far more need and challenge and opportunity far more than I could possibly do. You know, I don't mean like a factor of, it's not twice as much. It's not like if I added 10 more hours to, to the coin each week or 20 more hours, I could suddenly just do it all. It's nowhere close, right? It's, it's, it's like if I had 300 hours more, I still maybe wouldn't be close. So what that means is that one's discernment must increase. One must have to. One must go to the Lord more continually, more purposefully than ever before, 
Who is the person I can serve today? Who is the one? As all of these different people with all of their different needs, all their different challenges, um, who is the one I can serve the best and start there? And so that's, that is the continual challenge. Uh, and I don't mean that I resent the challenge. It's just inherently part uh, of, 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 the, of being called as a bishop. I don't believe it would be a counterfeit of essentialism to, to say that, that somebody, that I should simply just do less. Um, that, that's not what the book's about. That's not what uh, I believe at all. But I do think the obligation is for me to gain greater discernment than I've ever had before, uh, to use that mantle uh, and to seek for, for, for more of it, to seek for the charity necessary to discern the very best thing to do and the best way to serve and who I can respond to now. Um, I mean, President, President Monson, when he was a bishop, struggled with exactly the same thing. And the struggle is important. We're supposed to be in the struggle. We, we, the scriptural term is the wrestle. We're supposed to be engaged. We're supposed to engage in the wrestle. And he, you remember this story. He is, uh, he, he's in a stake meeting. He is, he's on the stage stand. The state president is speaking. He's a bishop at the time. He doesn't want to seem disrespectful. He's, he's struggling with the social obligation in that moment, feeling like he should go to the hospital to the person he knows is sick there. And he leaves. Finally, he just falls. He cannot wait any longer. And it's in the last, in the closing hymn, he just runs off the stand. He runs to the hospital. He gets there. And the person has already died. And the nurse says, are you Bishop Monson? Yes. He was calling to you before he passed. He wept from that experience. I mean, he learned, I mean, that is a quintessentially essentialist moment where he said, you know, I am going, I'm not going to just do the social obligations of my calling ever again. That's not what the focus will be. I am going to seek the voice of the Lord and let that essential be attuned to that essential voice and obey it. Now, the way of the essentialist that he's describing isn't an easier way. But it's a more meaningful way. It's his highest point of contribution. And he's pursued that for the rest of his life. And so it's, you know, it, it, it has been typical, even as being president of the church, that as he's going to some conference where 10,000 people are waiting for him to speak, that he'll still be waiting at the back and they will, they will wait to start that meeting. It will be late because on the way, as he's walking into the room, he sees somebody who he feels prompted to talk to. And the repetition of that experience that is the story of his life. That's why he has all these stories. It's not because he's done everything. It's not because he's just been undisciplined into whatever anything happened around him, any need from anyone. It's because he's been constantly on the Lord's errand. And that's the title of his, his biography, on the, isn't it? Yeah, on the Lord's errand. Um, and, and, and that's the difference. Essentialism is about finding the errand from the Lord, not just doing what the social environment is requiring, even the social environment within, within our ward, within our coin, within our quorum. And, and it's totally necessary, isn't it? Because if we want to break through to the next level in any, in any endeavor, including in our callings, we simply will have to make different trade-offs than people have made previously. And, and that takes courage. It takes leadership. It, it, that's, I don't think that's easy. I don't think that's easier, not in the short term. But in the long run, there's no breakthrough story of, of any kind that didn't require that kind of sacrifice. Think of how easily we think of how easily we use the word sacrifice in, a, in, a, in an unthinking way. I mean, sacrifice—the literal sacrifice. If we—if I sacrificed a lamb, right? If you and I were together and I sacrificed a lamb, you'd remember that for the rest of your life. You'd think this was the strangest thing you've ever had happen. You'd be like, Greg McEwen is a crazy man. You would. I'm not exaggerating. Sure, you, yeah. you kill this animal right here. The blood, the everything. And yet that is what sacrifice was, right? For thousands of years, there was a very, very distinct reminder of what sacrifice is and what it means. It, you know, sacrifice is the same idea as to decide. It's to cut or to kill. It means to eliminate. It means to make a trade-off. Present. Monson in that moment, in that, in the hospital story, wasn't making a trade-off. He was trying to do both. It comes full circle to the story I told you about earlier. In that moment, 
when I was in the hospital and I went to that meeting, I wasn't making a trade-off. I was trying to do both. And that is the, that, that's like counter to the whole plan of salvation. The whole plan of salvation is that we must make trade-offs. We, will, we, were, we are not permitted not to, <laughs> right? We can't escape them. And so the, so the position that I have is that we can either pursue a sort of, you know, respond to that challenge in a reactive, undisciplined, undiscipled way, but well-intentioned, but undiscipled, or we can pursue it with a discipled intention uh, and, and it's the, the Lord's will or bust. And, uh, and that, that's what I think it means to be an essentialist and to lead as an essentialist. And that concludes this throwback episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Remember to access the Questioning Saints library for 14 days. Visit leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.